Welcome back to the Friends and Neighbors podcast. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and this week, singer, songwriter, and author, John Fay. When I moved to Wilmington in 2020, my first order of business was to plug myself into the local music scene. It didn't take too much Googling to discover one of its luminaries, the guy with the CV, the songs, and the history for days. And it ends up, I'd known him all along. Singer-songwriter John Fay grew up in Newark, Delaware, the son of a Korean mother and Irish father. I was a cub reporter at Rolling Stone when his band, The Caulfields, 1995 hit Devil's Diary, blew up alternative radio. I took note of the band's proximity to my one-time hometown. Outside of the Hooters, the Philadelphia area lacked any real relatable rockers. To me, then, anyhow. In his new memoir, The Yin and Yang of It All, Rock and Roll Memories from the Cusp, Faye, like semi-sonic drummer Jacob Slichter's So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star, takes us deep inside the music business, warts, and it's mostly warts, and all. John goes deeper, though sharing the pain and isolation of adolescent microaggressions and grief over the loss of his father and emotional distance from his mother. He finds his way through the music, reviving, reinventing, and reformulating himself in all sorts of iterations, solo, duo, as a professor, husband, father, and now author. For 30 years, John's been a card-carrying member of music's middle class, the troubadours, rockers, and crooners out there every night, whether radio's listening, MTV's watching, or not. I caught up with John the morning after his Ardmore Music Hall book release party. It was part reading, part rock show, and featured a cast of bandmates and songs spanning three decades. It was nothing short of a triumph for a hometown hero and one heck of a nice guy. A friend of mine messaged me this morning and said, I bet you're having a bit of an emotional hangover right now. And I was like, that is the best possible way to put how I'm feeling. (laughs) Incredibly grateful. I mean, a lot of people have helped me a lot along the way to just make not only the book possible, but the show happen. And at every turn, I've had tremendous help. So I'm feeling really lucky. I mean, I can definitely say that with certainty. (laughs) It was a great show. I really, really appreciate it. I was smiling ear to ear (laughs) the whole time. I'd love to hear what you mean by emotional hangover. What does that mean? What I think it is, is that I, um, in a very uh, strangely metaphorical sense, I'm drunk off of the amount of, love that I got to experience. You know, as artists, you know, you're a songwriter, you're a musician. We all go through these moments of insecurity. Throughout the whole process of writing the book, I would very definitely have those moments where I was like, is anybody even going to give a crap about any of this? You know? Yeah. And as I started to share the book and received some very kind validation about the book itself. It gives you fuel to try the next 
harebrained scheme, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which would then be like, well, how about we have a release show? But instead of me just like sitting there reading passages from the book, let's make it a rock show. I have this tendency to just uh, lean into these ideas and uh, involve my friends. (laughs) And they have taken such incredible leaps of faith with me. They're just like, well, if he thinks it's going to be cool, I'm in. You know, and I and I had 13 of my closest musician friends with me last night that proved that it could be done. I'm interested in your self-talk. Do you have any sense of a self-talk at those points in your life? As a person who has actively talked out loud to myself my entire life. Oh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> the things going on inside my head were, as the title of the book indicates, kind of mixed up because... I just didn't know where I fit in. Mm-hmm. And I, I was trying so much to, you know, wanting to be seen and simultaneously feeling like it's safer to be invisible. Because in moments when I was seen very often as a kid, I became a little bit of a target. So there was this ambivalence. Like I wanted so much to not only know myself, but then have other people know who that self is. And it just so happened that music became the thing. But music, you know, you having read the book, music wasn't the first thing. I was making home movies with my friends in ninth grade. And for a time I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll just be part of like the next Monty Python or something. You know, like I I just had some kind of performance aspirations from a a very young age. I don't think I mentioned this in the book, but like I would put on these plays for my family. I had the basement of our house pretty much to myself. So I would create these little poorly constructed sets and write these like eight minute plays. I remember I charged six cents (laughs) because the nickel wasn't quite... I knew my worth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You describe yin and yang of everything multiple ways with sort of different lenses, but two halves in conflict, mm-hmm. random as a mixtape, the Carpenters, the Dead Kennedys. How did you walk through the world physically? You know, sort of what was your somatic experience? I don't suspect you knew in the moment, but I wonder how you think of that as an adult now. I think I was aware of my body language the whole time. Mm. I was a very slouchy kid. I would be constantly told, stand up straight. What's wrong with you? You're like, you're slouching. You know, my mother would say that. And part of that is when your head is down, people can't see your eyes. Yeah, yeah. It also kind of depended on the context and who I was with. If I felt safer, if I was with a friend or the people who were kind of like my kindred spirits at that age, my body language would be different as I'm sure everyone's is, depending on the situation and the context that they're in. Uh, So with some of my friends, I was more confident. There were moments when I was like incredibly cocky that way as a a kid, but they were very often offset with other not so confident times. I think you've heard me talk about acute stress, chronic stress, trauma, which is stuff, I mean, I didn't think applied to anybody except soldiers, right? And come to find out Mm -hmm. that it applies to everybody, right? 
And as I heard you reading last night, and as I read in the book, you were born out of wedlock. You've got this um, sort of mixed heritage that seems incongruous between your Korean ancestry and your Irish ancestry. I love that you reminded us last night of the fact that interracial marriage was illegal at that time, which is just almost doesn't make sense. There were 16 states left where it was illegal and Delaware was one of them. (laughs) We don't realize like how recently shit was still like pretty messed up. You know, I have no direct knowledge of how my parents may have experienced any kind of prejudice in that realm. It's very interesting when I think about it, because like my dad, he was Irish, but he was like Philly Irish. He was a cop. He knew Frank Rizzo when he was a police officer. So you can kind of get a vibe as to what cloth he's cut from. And then for him to fall in love, marry this Korean immigrant, it almost seems probably out of character for who he was, but he just loved her. Yeah. You know what I mean? I honestly don't know what they may have gone through in terms of, you know, people either being blatantly rude or cruel or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, just, you know, getting that look that people give. Yeah. But I do know that my own experience was that I didn't know any better for the first several years of my life. I was just a kid and my father was white and everywhere he took me, it was almost like he was a protector. I don't think anybody would have said anything seeing him with me. And when he died, that sort of layer of defense for me went away. And I was growing up a little bit. I was six and a half. I was going out in the neighborhood and out into the what was my world. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'm getting called names and yeah. being made fun of and laughed at. And it was quite a culture shock. I'm like, but wait. I'm an American boy, just like you guys. But, you know, as I say in the book, if, if enough ignorant people remind you that you're not accepted, you start to believe it. Yeah. And you start to believe that you're different. And you don't see that difference as a good thing. Now, obviously, I do. <laughs> That's safety. And, and you mentioning your father dying at, at six and a half, for heaven's sakes, I mean, to what degree have you explored some of that stuff, this idea of adverse childhood experiences? These are traumas that happen to us when we're kids. And like, cause it's all in the text or the subtext of the book and the music. Once I broke through a certain wall that I had set up in myself as a musician. I mean, I started writing songs as a teenager, but I didn't address any of this stuff. But as soon as I was able to sort of pierce that armor, which is basically the the song that I wrote about losing my father, Mm -hmm. which I wrote 20 years after he died, basically. After that point, that's where the exploration starts for me. You know, songwriting, as with many songwriters, for me is my literal therapy. Yeah. I mean, I've been to therapy a couple times in my life, but it it didn't do for me what doing something creative does for me. So I didn't continue going. Yeah. I just sort of lean on creative pursuits as the thing that 
soothes me and the thing that allows me to dig into feelings that maybe are hard just to sort of ruminate over. If you can express them in a form that throws a little beauty out into the world while (laughs) bearing your soul, I think that that's given me the most insight and relief to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I mean, that's why, you know, people could become songwriters for all different reasons, but like most of the ones that I relate to are like, you know, Oh, you went through some shit and you got to get it out. Yeah. I get it. I mean, I've been writing songs since I was 15. And so that's, you know, I don't know, 35 years or so. Right. And I had no idea what I was doing, but ends up, it was kind of saving my life. Right. Just the act of doing it. In the book, you talk about, in Book of Your Life lyrics, which I keep using on my Instagram stories, because it's perfect, right? Yeah. Um, Who knew? (laughs) Of course. I love it. You sing about anticipating four-leaf clovers, right? But you Mm -hmm. write about the tattoo and you saying, no, 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 three leaves. I want realistic expectations. So unpack that for me a little explicitly. How do you reconcile that? Is that a maturation? Is that the difference between, I don't know, 25-year-old you and 45-year-old you? Like, what's that journey? Sometimes it's hard to, like, totally deconstruct 28-year-old songs or whatever. But um, (laughs) they're kind of one and the same, you know, because when I said anticipating four-leaf clover, I don't think I looked at that as a realistic anticipation (laughs) at the time. You protect yourself from disappointment by having realistic expectations Mm -hmm. or low expectations. And I'm still like that. I mean, even yesterday, I was like, nobody's going to come to this. Right. It's packed. Yeah. But but it's a uh, almost like a reflex to protect yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's I think that's just always been who I am. You ask yourself all the time, is anybody going to care? Yeah. I would be an idiot after a night like last night to think that I can go around saying that. It was so obvious that people cared. Yeah. And I always have to remember that and keep that close to me and not use it to be cocky, but use it as just to remember, to be grateful, really. (laughs) That's what you have to sort of take from those experiences, you know. Yeah. And maybe I'll have one of my clovers get an extra leaf. I'll have my tattoo artist bird throw another leaf on there on one of them. <laughs> I love the origin story of Bigger Than Jesus. Help the audience with the origin story and then talk about your head at that moment last night. One thing that I'll say, uh, and you can probably relate to this as a songwriter too, is that like you just never know where an idea is going to come from. Yeah. So many of my songs, especially in those days, because I was in, everybody in the band was in, a tenuous situation in terms of like, would we be able to afford our rent? Because we all were so dedicated to the band that, I mean, I know that I personally 
went out of my way to take horrible jobs because it allowed me to focus on the band. Yeah. Like there was a part of me that was very conscious because I saw some fellow musician friends, you know, like once you take the job at the bank or whatever, yeah, totally, <laughs> and you taste that little piece of security or like, well, I could get used to like this kind of level of living. Mm -hmm. I saw that before long, they were like, yeah, I'm not going to do the band anymore. Mm -hmm. I knew for myself, like I could never allow that to happen. Even now. I mean, what you see behind me, this is what my whole apartment looks like. I don't, I don't have stuff. Yeah. So it, it was just a period of time when things could have gone very different way. My bass player, Sam, and I discuss regularly how the band was probably going to be defunct within about six months, had a series of events that led to the band getting signed, not gone into play. And one of the tipping points was giving a demo that had the song Devil's Diary, which I wrote on the back of a riding lawnmower <laughs> while working on an estate in in Centerville, that's what changed the trajectory of our whole life. And one of the reasons that I still personally like it is because it's a perfect encapsulation of like what a sarcastic, weird guy yeah. I was at the time. Because I don't know how many people would be like melting in the sun, cutting like acres and acres of grass and have a scenario like that pop into their head. And so to this day, I'm like, well, that was a pretty lucky break. <laughs> I was lucky to be having a crappy job and feeling at my lowest and just having, you know, shoveled six inches of chicken shit out of a coop and all of those things. <laughs> and how did you pivot it into the, um, I got to stop and write this down? I didn't write it down. I don't really write things down. Oh, jealous. Weirdly enough, if an idea of mine is worth its salt, it will just stay in my brain. Not that I haven't written lyrics down subsequently to that, but that particular one, you know. It's its own test too, right? If it's sticky in your brain, then it might be sticky. It's likely to be sticky elsewhere. Yeah. But to be honest with you, I was not what you would call like somebody with like A&R sensibilities <laughs> at that age. I was just writing songs. Yeah. And if I thought they were good, they were good. I personally wasn't someone who said, this is going to be the one right. that gets the deal. I never thought that about Devil's Diary. In fact, the band was somewhat shocked that a and I mean, we knew that that's what got us the deal, but the fact that they went to the wall to like release it as a single, we were just like, well, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> and that was a whole adventure in and of itself. Like once the song was on the radio, depended on where you were, what the reaction was going to be. I don't know if the book's been out long enough for you to get this feedback, but I was reminded of Jacob Slichter's book, mm -hmm. uh, which is like top five for me. I got a chance to meet him and Semisonic a couple of times. And interesting kind of little story. Everybody in our band were fans of Semisonic. And most of us, if not all of us, had read that book. And so we knew what his viewpoint was, how he saw himself in the band. And we had the opportunity to play a house show with Semisonic oh, in Georgia. Right. Yeah. Probably close to 10 years ago. 
We'd played his house with Matthew Sweet, played his house with Pat Denizio from the Smithereens, and one of the shows was with Semisonic. He actually, in his words, got them out of retirement yeah. to come to Georgia to play the show, rented a piano just so they could play the opening of Closing yep, Time. And yep. But the thing about Jacob Slichter is that even after all of they, that they had been through, like the dynamic of the band that he describes in the book is the same. And it was fascinating to watch because we were just hanging out in this basement watching them sound check. And Dan Wilson would like look back at Jacob just with a very quick glance. And I saw him take his wallet out and put it on his snare drum to deaden it because right. it was, it was too loud. Wow. Yeah. And for him to like, just instinctively do that when the guy's just like, it's <laughs> incredible. That spoke volumes about that relationship and that dynamic and I was just like, this is fascinating. Yeah. When I started writing my book, I kind of utilized what I really enjoyed about his book as sort of a roadmap because he's kind of approaching his point of view as somebody who's on the cusp too. Like he's in a popular band, but he's the drummer. <laughs> so he's basically watching Dan and John get, you know, they're the front guys. Yeah. They're getting most of the attention. And so it's from his lens. And in some ways, a lot of like my stories have that viewpoint too, even though I'm the singer of my band in a broader context, our band is still kind of like surprised we're invited to the party yeah, or feeling like we're crashing the party. <laughs> we have this idea that like, it's all glamour and sex and well, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Right. But you talk about the musical middle class, which I think is a yeah. really useful frame to recontextualize the sort of reality. So unpack that a little, will you? That is like one of the major things that I would like a broader audience to get out of reading the book is that because we live in such a fame obsessed yeah. culture, because we live in such a metrics obsessed culture where people are looking at nothing but the number of followers by your name instead of like actually listening to what you have to say or what you're putting out into the world. It's something that I've thought about for a long time because so many of my friends and acquaintances who are musicians are very much like myself. We are, and this is not to be arrogant or anything, but like we do our thing on a pretty high level. We're arguably just as good as anybody who's famous at what we do. And yet we're not. And yet we keep going. Yeah. And we still find a way. We make it our mission to find a way. And that is the kind of musician that I honestly respect the most. And that is the kind of musician that I think needs to be not only celebrated, but at the, you know, we're not even hardly acknowledged. Yeah. Because it's like, well, if you're not that guy I saw on TV, then what are you to me? Think about during the pandemic, like how much people missed music. Yeah. Just being able to go to their local rock club and see a band or whatever. Yeah. There's so much value in what the musical middle class provides that is not fairly compensated or even acknowledged by general society. Yeah. Yeah. It's like there's people that will pay $4,000 for Springsteen tickets. Totally. And yeah. yet that same person 
might balk at like a $25 ticket for somebody like myself or even somebody more well-known than me. And I think that that's just a mentality that I I wholeheartedly just want to like push back on. All musicians are giving you their heart and soul. I just really feel like very driven to elevate this class of musicians because we're here. (laughs) And quite honestly, there's a lot more of us than there are of, you know, the people who are in bed with Ticketmaster and all that. I feel you. And I think I'm a part of that. You get at something as I hoped you would, but you do so brilliantly in the book. There's a kinship in our journey and I didn't reach your heights, but I certainly fantasize about it and I could smell it, you know, and I had moments where it was felt like it was in reach. Like when I got to go to the offices of Sony and talk to the guy about getting signed and he was like, well, sorry, you don't shake your ass like Ricky Martin. I don't know what to do with you. And I was like, (laughs) what? You know, you weren't in Menudo. Sorry. Oh yeah. Yeah. And he's like, you don't got great breasts like Shakira. Literally the man said this to me, right? Right around the same time, probably 90, 99. That's the unfortunate thing about that world is that, look, I was real lucky to be on a label that more so than most was rooted in the music. And the people that worked there were, for the most part, very, very dedicated to that. And it's a top-down thing because it was started by a musician. But we would hear stories from the people that worked there who knew people that worked at Interscope or DGC or whatever, and there's always going to be that element of like music business, greasy cigar chomping, coked up idiots who really just want the next big thing yeah. for their own egos. Sometimes that world, while I can't say that I would trade in the experience because quite honestly, I had to go through that. And I, and I was lucky to go through that because as I said last night, I got a few checks that, sort of set up some things in my life that I am very grateful for. But it feels to me like the closer I got into that world or the more I immersed in that world, the more I knew that maybe it, I wasn't the guy. I wasn't the fit for that. Reading that in the arc of your book and the sort of reconciliation, the sense of grief and loss and like, It's a journey I was on because I moved to New York City, as I always tell people, to be on the cover of Rolling Stone or to write for Rolling Stone. Well, guess which one I ended up doing because that's what my feet kept doing, which is walking me into corporate offices to write. You know (laughs) what I mean? But I had to reconcile in my early 30s, like, dude, this isn't happening. You got to find another reason to do it and let go of that. And I still wrestle with it a teensy bit, as absurd as that sounds. You know, that record I made in Muscle Shoals, I think is a great record. And so there's a part of me that's like, God damn, like doesn't anyone want to listen to that? But you just, I, that ain't it. You know, that ain't it. There's one thing that I can say that I truly feel in my heart, which is never say never. (laughs) You don't know. Either one of us could be the next Kate Bush or whatever. And obviously that's not the motivation to keep going. It has to be from something internal. Yeah. But I've been personally surprised enough times by like how many musical rebirths I've been granted in the world Yeah, that I should not spend any time predicting the future. How did songwriting inform writing a memoir? Well, obviously on the face of it, there are two extremely different processes because you can write one in 30 minutes right. and this one took six years. Right. So 
there's very blatant differences. But one of the things that I, and I think this came out a little bit last night, the idea for what you saw on stage last night evolved very quickly over a compressed amount of time. Originally, it was going to be like, well, I'm just going to tell some stories and then we'll get up and do a rock show. Yeah. Like it was going to be two separate things. And then it became, well, how about you guys be on stage? It might be a little clunky, you know, like if everybody's like walking on and off or whatever. And, totally. and then it became like, why don't you guys like play underneath what I'm reading? And when that started to come together, the rhythm of my prose started to make itself more obvious. And I realized this while writing it too, in some ways, that there was a rhythm and a cadence to how the sentences were going, which is very, you know, I pay a lot of attention to that in my songs too. So as these were being presented last night, I felt I was waiting for them to get to the end of the bar before I started the next sentence. And I, I tried to keep like a rhythm to it. And some of the sentences were structured such that I have a lot of run on sentences. So there's like many, many commas. So each section gets its own, you know, and so I do think that that element was sort of a crossover. Yeah. Obviously, when you're writing prose, you're going to use certain words and, and linguistic tricks that maybe that wouldn't sound right in a song. But for both things, you want to speak in your voice. Yeah. It's got to sound like me. And so that was always a consideration in terms of like writing prose or writing songs. It always has to be in that voice. I think that, you know, because I wasn't always just strictly trying to write songs in my earlier life, I was writing screenplays and a bunch of other stuff. I didn't feel completely like a fish out of water writing prose. It's something I've always wanted to do. You mentioned um, somewhere uh, reading Mary Carr's book and Tobias Wolff's book. I went to Syracuse. I studied with him when I was a senior. I did a creative writing. I'm a creative writing and newspaper major, which is pretty funny. I hear Toby in my head all the time, basically saying shorter sentences, shorter sentences, shorter. And I do what you do. Like they are like, I'm a whole paragraph. At the beginning of writing the book, I came to a moment very early on. I was like, I should probably like research how people do this. And I started looking at videos on YouTube, like memoirists. Da, 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 da. I saw all these Mary Carr videos and she's brilliant. Yeah. Like I have a huge crush on her. <laughs> and as you know, she wrote, she divided her life into three different memoirs, which I was like, holy crap, this person, obviously, if she's able to do that, she must be a master of detail, a master of, of many things. And then of course, after my whole rabbit hole, come to find out that she wrote a book called The Art of Memoir. Yeah, totally. I'm like, well, I guess I'm going to read that. So just between those two authors, you know, I have three of her books, This Boy's Life, The Art of Memoir, and then I just kept rolling. But one of the things that, and I think her and Tobias Wolf were close. Yep. One of the things that she said that he said to her really resonated with me, which was something along the lines of, take no care for your own dignity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which I take to mean as if you got to look bad because it's the truth, you got to look bad. Yeah. So every time in my own book, when it came to that point where, you know, like somebody could very easily gloss over something or sugarcoat something, 
I was like, I gotta, I gotta take the fall here. I got a really nice message from an old college friend of mine who read the book yesterday. And this was like right before leaving to get to Ardmore Music Hall. I was like, oh, I got a message. I'll, I'll read this. And she wrote a very, very kind mini review for me. She said something that I was just like, oh, this is, she was like, I got angry for you and at you. Ah. And I was like, you understood. <laughs> yeah. You have to present yourself as the whole thing. Yeah. And we're all imperfect and we all do shitty things from time to time. And that had to be part of how I presented it. And that's, to me, like, that's one of the great lessons that I take from Mary Carr and Tobias Wolf. Yeah, 100%. Um, but just her description of how to take a sort of mundane sentence or scene and make it more vivid for people. I really tried to take that to heart. She made a point of saying, tap into all of your senses. Mm -hmm. So if you can describe how a scene not only looks, but sounds and smells or how something feels to the touch, you're doing more to bring a reader into your world yeah. by doing that. And so I was fairly conscious of that kind of thing whenever I could be. I will be the first to admit that when when I realized that there was no turning back and that this book was going to be something you could hold in your hand and strangers could read about yeah. these details of my life, it did scare me. Sure. Because I'm like, I can't believe that I'm putting this out. You get that thought like six years too late. <laughs> <laughs> it's printed, John. <laughs> it's printed. Nothing I can do. You get those sort of pangs of mini panic, yeah. you know, over like, well, what are people going to think? But then to a person, everyone who has read the book that has communicated their thoughts with me is that they appreciate that it's a, a truthful, balanced look at somebody's life. I mean, it's there in the title. <laughs> And I, I do think like the topic of vulnerability is something that needs to be talked about more in the broader culture because we are definitely living in times when it's so toxic in, in so many circles about, you know, like never apologize and, you know, don't let somebody talk to you like they, like you have to respond with violence if you're slighted in the least bit. And it's a word that I think needs to be viewed in a more positive light. Yeah. Cause you'll hear people making excuses. Like, I don't mean to make myself vulnerable. Yeah. Well, why the hell don't you mean to make yourself vulnerable? That shows that you're a human being. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's the feeling I had that connects to a universal experience, which is the universal desire to be seen and understood and validated, which just means like, I see you. There's space between us for you to be you. It's hard for people to do that, to find that space for each other, to find that space for themselves. And because you take us on that journey, you help us to feel okay about that hole that so many of us have because you're like, hey, I got it. The more that people who have a platform and, you know, admittedly, like my platform is modest, but it does exist. Yeah. However, I can use that to encourage people to be kinder, yeah. be willing to be vulnerable. That's my agenda. 
it's pretty simple. <laughs> Sarah McBride said something to me last January that really was the catalyst for me going, oh, this is a movie. And it was super Fred Rogersy of her. And he's a shared sort of interest of ours. And it was just on this topic. She said, you know, I find that when I'm vulnerable with my truth, when I can share my secrets, the things that are feel uncomfortable, that not only do I live without regret, but I give people permission to do the same or people have permission to do the same. I had an opportunity to do like a little Zoom meeting the other day with um, some high school kids. I ended up saying like, I know that so much of what culture tells us to do is to like avoid the quote unquote cringe. I'm so in the opposing camp of that. It's like embrace the cringe, that openness. And like you said, like you're giving not only yourself permission to be a human being, but you're giving other people, you're saying like, it's okay for you to be you too. I was struck throughout the show last night. You were reading like smart, funny, quippy, like laugh along sections. And I kept thinking, where's mom? Like, where's mom? Right. But then of course, cause you're a smart storyteller, you begin to take the turn just about what would be the third reel of the movie you take that turn. And I just was so profoundly moved by the passage in the book where you say, you know, she would say to you, is it good? Yeah. Is that good? It was yeah. almost under your breath last night, John, you go, that's what I was asking you. Right. <laughs> God, bro. So resonant for me. And I think all of us. So what does that mean to you? And how do you answer that now? My relationship with my mom had that kind of, there was a deep closeness, which always was there. But when it came to things like me wanting so desperately for her to understand and accept what I was doing as a musician, songwriter, somebody who wanted to pursue something creative, I didn't really take into much account at the time that she had no context for this stuff. Right. She's a Korean immigrant. She didn't listen to pop music growing up. She had no idea what it was. So her asking me that, while I probably took it badly at the time, was a genuine question. Like she was basically saying to me, well, you're the expert on this. Is it good? Because I don't know. I don't know any of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As progresses toward the end of the book, when she passes away, having the opportunity to sing her favorite songs at her her funeral basically mm -hmm. that was really the moment when i knew i didn't have to ask anymore yeah and so that was a whole micro journey within the book is getting to that point where i knew mom would have loved it and it was very bittersweet to have that realization after she was gone and that she couldn't hear me do it. That's what really broke my heart yeah. is that it, it never occurred to me until she died that that's how I could connect with her. Mm. She loved John Denver, man. <laughs> me too. Well, I didn't. No, I'm sure you didn't. I'm sure you didn't. Well, because, well and here's why. Because I was not going to be the guy that was going to like appreciate someone who just got how to live. <laughs> he knew 
the beauty of simplicity. He knew the beauty of just, man, sunshine on my shoulders. That's fucking awesome. I was a kid whose father had died. I had all kinds of issues. I was pissed off. I was being made fun of. Like I was not going to be the guy to accept that. And my whole life until that moment, basically, I didn't get it. Yeah. And then a switch goes off. Yeah. And I'm like, no wonder she loved the guy. They were kindreds. Yeah. Simplicity, that was her whole thing. Yeah. You read the book. Like, the whole journey is, like, me overthinking, being too complicated, just trying to get to the point where, like, I somehow get it. <laughs> and it's still ongoing. Sure, I mean, I don't, course, I don't yeah. no, none of us fully get it, but I think in that particular respect in terms of me understanding what my relationship with my mother ultimately meant and how she actually saw me, which I didn't have the proper perspective on until way too late in the game. Yeah. But that's the way it is with all of us and our parents probably because you don't even see them as full human beings until a certain point. Yeah. yeah. Which for some people never happens. Luckily for me, it has now happened, but it took a lot to get there. And it's a beautifully rendered journey. I grew up with leaving on a jet plane, the Peter, Paul and Mary and John Denver versions being played. Carol King, a lot of rubber soul, a lot of like more singer songwritery stuff. It brings people such joy in a way that to use your exact language and your mother's wisdom is so well, what Fred Rogers would call deep and simple. It's not just simple, it's profound. It's not simplistic. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, think about like country roads. Yeah. (laughs) It touches people's hearts in a very fundamental way. And that's something that I think that every songwriter struggles with. Just the fact that you have to recognize the beauty and simplicity, which not a lot of people do right away because you think like, well, the more complex it is, the, the better it must be because I'm doing all this extra stuff. That guy just had the secret sauce. You know, if you, if you read anything about the guy, I mean, he was just a cool down to earth dude. Right. I mean, (laughs) yeah. In a very interesting way, like my mother's love of that music taught me something about being a musician that I don't think I would have gotten in any other form. Yeah. Time sure is a great teacher. Your mother was the teacher, but it took time to help that reveal itself, right? Well, almost everything she said, I didn't accept at first. Sure. I think this was in the book originally, but I took it out for whatever reason. (laughs) Um, But I remember taking a trip to see my sister in Ohio with my mom, like a road trip. It's really the only road trip I really remember taking with my mom. She drove to... Ohio, because my sister was going to OSU for her master's. Uh, okay, yeah. She would try to like talk to me while she was driving in the car and sort of like talk about what I considered to be like highfalutin, deep topics. She would talk to me about like Buddhist concepts or, you know, well, Lao Tzu says this. And I would, I, I, I'm such a dick. I literally, <laughs> there's a, a thing that Joe Strummer does at the end of Know Your Rights on the combat rock clash album. And he sings like, get off the street. <laughs> like, oh, I like literally yelled that in my mom's ear while she was driving. 
like to Ohio. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was not ready to receive the message is what I'm saying. That's rebellion, man. Right. Like it was something. <laughs> You write, I finally feel like I'm a man. What does that mean to you? Well, so that's, you're quoting a song called Church and State, which I wrote after my mom passed away. I feel like the last weeks of her life made me, it transformed me. It's a funny word to use when your your second parent passes away when you're in your 40s or whatever, but you feel like an orphan. (laughs) But at the same time, I was like, I have to take stock of who I am because I'm on my own now. Right. I don't have her anymore. And she was my person from the day that my dad died, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. In writing that song and taking stock of all the lessons that she presented me with, which were what I call time release (laughs) in that I did not absorb them until much later. I realized how much, not only she taught me, but how much she was on my team the whole time, even though I didn't feel necessarily like that was the case the whole time. And when I just sort of like took stock of all of those experiences and where I stood in the aftermath of her passing, for the first time, I literally felt like I was a fully formed adult. At the same time, you talk about finding that kid again. Did you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And what's that mean? How's that? How do you experience that? So finding that kid in a lot of ways is tapping back into the energy and the sort of the confidence. Yeah. That, that kid had, you know, cause well, cause he didn't know any better. <laughs> he was just like, I'm the man. I've got yeah. my wiffle ball bat. I'm in my American flag shorts. I'm good. You know? <laughs> and, uh, my whole musical life has been a way to rediscover that because mm-hmm. a music keeps you young inherently mm-hmm. rock and roll keeps you fairly immature. <laughs> so it's a balancing act. But, you know, a lot of my experiences with teaching, with being like a a rock school band coach, it just made me realize it's like you got to maintain that piece of you. Obviously, I have many friends my own age who love and support me, but they're not the people that are going to go out three nights a week to see a band. So most of the people I hang out with are in their 20s and 30s, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. And I realize that part of what I get from those friendships is I get to feed off of their youthful energy, their hunger. Yeah. The same hunger that you and I felt when we were 25. Yeah. So I'm always around it. And I always just, you know, it's like... uh, (laughs) It's like the thing in uh, There Will Be Blood. I drink your milkshake. (laughs) (laughs) I don't beat them to death with a bowling pin after, but (laughs) I feel that needs to be said. (laughs) I'm struck by my inadvertent juxtaposition of those two questions, those two ideas of like, I finally feel like I'm a man and I've found that kid again. And it's yin and yang. It's balance. 
I don't like the idea of, well, I'm not the same person. Yeah. Well, you are. You're just a more evolved version of that same person. Yeah. And you've been able to incorporate more of all the good stuff. You know, like life is a journey or a process of trying to like absorb as much good and filter out as much bad as you possibly can. And like whatever positive aspects of every phase of your life that you can incorporate into your present self is incredibly valuable. I would say that maintaining that innocence and almost that joy of being a blank page in a way, Mm -hmm. it allows me to always feel like something good is going to happen. People say, well, you hit a certain age, you're past your prime. I don't look at my own life that way. And at the age that I am, I don't know a lot of people personally who are still as ambitious as I am. Everybody's living their own life and whatever makes people happy is great. But like for me, I need to be hungry. Yeah, That's why I still uh, eschew creature comforts so that I don't get too comfortable because I always want to be hungry and I always want to strive for something. And it's served me okay so far. It sure has. <laughs> Time goes by and change upsets you. The Friends and Neighbors podcast is an Essential Industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Please rate and review the podcast on your favorite platform. Not only does it help us to improve the show, but it also helps other people discover and join our neighborhood. Please visit friendsandneighborsshow.com to listen to previous episodes or subscribe to our newsletter. We promise not to spam you, but we will deliver fresh and meaningful news and information straight to your inbox every week. And I'd love to hear from you directly. Drop me an email at benjaminbwagner at gmail.com. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. <laughs>